So how was your 4th of July? <laughs> Have a good time? Good time? <laughs> Kay and I stayed at home, trembling in terror. <laughs> we had a hot dog, just the one. We're losers, so we, we lost that war. And people said to us, did you celebrate? We're like, yeah, we lost. Awesome. You know, that was good. So, no, I'm just kidding. It was fun. Hope you had a great time. Uh, we are, as you see, continuing this run series this weekend. The title for the message is All Present and Incorrect. All Present and Incorrect. We're going to look at one of the most famous runners in running history. His name is Jonah. It's a 2,800-year-old story, and we're going to look at a various texts from that story. Jonah chapter 1 says this, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. <clears throat> then chapter three. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go down, go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. Verse five. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. How many know what burlap is? Well, that's quite good. How many don't care? <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw that what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, who became very angry, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you'd do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. Are you glad that God doesn't always immediately answer prayer? I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort and Jonah was very grateful for the, for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. <laughs> the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? It was great to celebrate the fact of so many people being baptized in water at Horsetooth yesterday. A few months ago, Kay and I led a trip to London and the Holy Land and that meant that we did some baptisms at the River Jordan. There are two baptismal sites at the Jordan, uh, one of which has snapping catfish to entertain you while you are baptizing. And so I felt led to go to the other site, 
which doesn't have the catfish. And during our wonderful time there, it was such a time of great joy. It was captured in this photograph of Claire, who is from Scotland, as she came out from the water. <laughs> I contacted Claire a couple of days ago. I said, Claire from Scotland, I want to show your glorious photograph to 5,000 people. This weekend, she said, go ahead, send the check. <laughs> no, I made that up. She didn't say that at all. But it was supposed to be a moment of great joy, but I think she swallowed the water or something. It wasn't quite as planned. This was supposed to be a moment of joy. Jonah preaches the shortest sermon in history and perhaps the most successful. One sentence, that's a pretty short sermon, about eight seconds. How many people believe more sermons should be of this duration? It's bad. And a whole city repents. He's supposed to be ecstatic, but he isn't. He's angry. He is really angry. Who was he? We don't really know. We know his father's name. We know where he came from. We know he lived 2,800 years ago. He was a prophet active in Israel. And we know his field of operation. It was Nineveh, the great city it's described as. The writer of the book of Jonah likes the word great. The word occurs 14 times. But it was great in size, but not great in character or nobility. They did horrifying things that would sicken your stomach if I described them to you, especially in warfare. Nineveh was in the news two hours ago. On my way to church, my cell phone beeped. It was a BBC News update to say that the Iraqi government is claiming that the city of Mosul, which has been occupied by ISIS for some time, has now been liberated. There are, there's still some fighting going on there right now. Mosul is Nineveh. Mosul is Nineveh, uh, the eastern side of the city is Nineveh, 250 miles north of Baghdad. It's in the news today, but it was in the news 2,800 years ago too, in this story of struggle and anger and running. So what can we learn? Let's dive in. If you've got your bulletin, have a look at the first point in the outline. As we're talking about anger, let's realize that anger is not always bad. Anger is not always bad. Jonah became very angry, it says. He was very upset. Actually, he was upset with God. One translator says this, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Let me give you a little linguistic, theological, nuanced point here. This sentence, Jonah became very angry, uses a literary device called a figura etymologia. You might want to write that down and impress your friends with that statement over a hamburger. You can just casually drop it in the conversation. Like, by the way, did you know that in Jonah there are figura etymologias, don't you know? <laughs> what is a figura etymologia? A figura etymologia is where you use the same word repeatedly in a sentence to make a point. So the literal translation of this sentence goes like this. But it was anger to Jonah, great anger, and he was angry. I think the writer wants us to know this boy is ticked. And there's a reason for his anger. Chaim Lewis talks about the Assyrians, these 
these people who occupied Nineveh, Chaim Lewis says this, the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel. For Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. And the whole idea of God not bringing justice to that city made Jonah mad. He is furious. I want to say this as we talk about anger. Not all anger is wrong. I believe that we're living in a culture of passivity where maybe we need to get some proper anger, righteous anger if you like, restored. God gets angry because he loves and because he cares. He is not indifferent. I get amused sometimes when I go back to England and I see British game shows. You know, in American game shows, people get really excited. You know, there's that team standing behind the counter with the guy who is the host. And the host says, you have won a watermelon. And they go, and they And they applaud themselves. Have you noticed that these days? We applaud, we're like, awesome, you did great, me. That's weird. But American game show audiences get very excited very naturally. Well, then the British try to copy that, and it's hilarious. <laughs> you have won three million pounds. Absolutely good, super. <laughs> Some people think God's like that. Yes. The left eyebrow slightly raised as a display of emotion. Henry Melville said, the reason most people fear God and dislike him is because they rather distrust his heart and think he is all brain like a watch, somewhat robotic. When I was in Bible college 300 years ago, they taught us the doctrine of impassibility. Impassibility is the idea that God isn't moved. He's like a stern Victorian papa, a robotic figure. That is not the Bible picture of God. God is passionate. God is passionate about you. Hosea prophesied about a God whose heart churns within him, who is provoked, who is grieved, who is angry at times. T.S. Eliot says or said that God's wrath or anger is the unfamiliar name for his love. He's like a compassionate mother moved for her children. He's like the ecstatic father who runs out to a wayward son. He's grieved, angry, pleased, joyful. Zephaniah describes God as dancing for joy over his people. God is passionate. And I believe that we need to understand as we talk a little about anger today that there are things that we should be angry about because God is angry and he wants our hearts to reflect his heart. God is not looking for indifference. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Whatever Talk to the hand because the face isn't interested. Eli Wiesel, concentration camp survivor, talked about indifference. It's a long quote, but I think it's worthwhile. What is indifference? Etymologically, the word means no difference. 
What are its causes and inescapable consequences? Is it a philosophy? Is there a philosophy of indifference conceivable? Can one possibly view indifference as a virtue? Is it necessary at times to practice it simply to keep one's sanity, live normally, enjoy a fine meal as the world around us experiences harrowing upheavals? Of course, he says, indifference can be tempting. More than that, seductive. It's so much easier to look away from victims. It's so much easier to avoid such rude interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It is, after all, awkward, troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who is indifferent, his or her neighbor are of no consequence, and therefore their lives are meaningless. Their hidden or even visible anguish is of no interest. Indifference reduces the other to an abstraction. Indifference, after all, is more dangerous than anger or hatred. Anger can at times be creative. One writes a great poem, a great symphony. One does something special for the sake of humanity because one is angry at the injustice that one witnesses. But indifference is never creative. Even hatred at times may elicit a response. You fight it, you denounce it, you disarm it. Indifference elicits no response. Indifference is not a response. And in a world where we are bombarded by harrowing news, it is possible for us to experience compassion fatigue where we just don't care anymore. And I want to say that I believe that some anger is right. I remember when our daughter Kelly came back from spending time in Ethiopia. She met two young ladies in a street. She took them for coffee. And then after taking them for coffee, 13, 14 years old, had to drop them back off to the street corner where the pimp was waiting because they were involved and forced, trafficked into prostitution. And she came back to London. We met her at the airport. She came back home, and she went into the bathroom. She's having a shower, and she's, suddenly I can hear this pounding against the wall. She's pounding the wall as she's showering. And she came out and said, honey, what's going on? She said, daddy, I am so angry. She said, I turned the lever and I got instant clean hot water and I've been with people who have to walk miles for drinking water. I've been with two girls who right now have to give their bodies because of injustice. I'm angry about it. God, give us anger that is right rather than just indifference. Is it, is it possible that God could touch some of our hearts and say, hey, stop looking away. Stop saying someone else will take care of it. Get angry. Secondly, secondly, running from God is a sprint downhill. Running from God is a sprint downhill. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction, it says in chapter one and verse three. He got up and went in the opposite direction, running away from the Lord. And man, he ran. He ran 1,500 miles, 2,800 years before the next airplane was due. He ran. He was sent northeast, but he headed southwest. He's called to speak, but he stays silent. He's standing in the presence of the Lord and he walks away from God. And Tarshish 
was thought to be the ends of the earth. It was a metaphor, an actual place, but people thought, that's the end of the world. Rabbi Sheldon Blank says this, what is Tarshish in the story of Jonah? It's anywhere, anywhere but the right place. It's the opposite direction. It's the direction a person takes when he turns his back on his destiny. And I want you to notice too that in Jonah, Jonah keeps going downhill. And the language is deliberate. And so Jonah is called to get up, but he goes down into the boat. He goes down into a deep sleep. You see, when you run away from God, you don't stand on level ground. There will be an increasing deterioration. And if I understand what the Bible says about hardening our hearts, there will be an increasing inability to hear the whisper of God. You don't stand on level ground. That's why this weekend could be a fabulous junction for some. Because it could be some people here who are saying, who've been saying, yeah, later. Some other time, Lord. But today you're going to realize that you're not standing on level ground. You're running downhill and you're running faster. Respond, if you please. Thirdly, let's know that when we run from God, we run from love. When we run from God, we run from love. Let's face it, everyone. You mentioned Jonah. You mentioned the story of Jonah. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? A whale, a, a big fish. That's the children's story. Someone has said that we have seen so much of the big fish that we've missed out on the vision of the great God. Jonah's not about a fish. There are 48 verses in the book, and God is mentioned 39 times. And he is shown to be, and I choose my words carefully, beautiful. He loves the Assyrians. The Assyrians were unspeakable. How many knows that God loves people that we don't love? He is amazing in his love. He acts in the detail. He sends wind on the sea. The sailors cast lots, and God is in that. He provides the great fish. He's in the detail. He is gracious and tender-hearted. The word for compassion, which is used to describe God here, it means the womb, this nurture and care of the womb. He is slow to anger, so patient with Jonah, abounding in love, Hesed is the word, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord. I want to say this. If you're running from God, you're running from love because he's beautiful. Sometimes people ask me, what's the most profound Christian service or meeting that you've ever attended? I go to lots of Christian services. I'm, I'm going to be at four this weekend. And I'm going to hear the preacher four times. And it's like, I know what he's going to say. And I spend a lot of time in Christian gatherings. In fact, most of them are quite good. And sometimes they're quite boring. Um, can I, is it all right to say that? Because Christians can be boring. Um, you know, some, I've been in some boring services that are so boring, I feel sorry for God because he has to be there. I'm like, oh, omnipresence has its drawbacks. This is... I can tell you without any doubt, 
the most significant Christian gathering. I remember the night, and it was 30 years ago, and 30 years later, I still meet people in England who come up to me and they say, I was there that night. I was there that night. I remember that night. What happened? Well, I was preaching at a youth event. On my way to the tent, there were about a thousand young people there, and on my way to the tent, God whispered something to my heart. God said to me, tonight I'm going to teach you a lesson you'll never, ever forget. That got my attention. I was talking about the father heart of God. Our son Richard was two. He came up onto the platform. It was arranged. And I picked him up and held him in my arms. The worship team were playing. And I just gently spoke about my love for him and God's love for us. And it was a nice sort of, it was a little sentimental and a few teary eyes and I heard one lady say, oh, he's so cute. And I think they were talking about Richard. <laughs> and it was nice and I was supposed to just put him down. Kay was waiting and I'd just preach. But then suddenly he opened his arms like this. And I thought, Frank, I thought he was going to punch me, which really would have ruined the illustration. I love my son. Poof. But he didn't punch me. He suddenly just threw his arms around me and buried his head in my neck. That was the moment. It was like a thunderclap hit that congregation. Some people immediately fell to the floor. People started to cry out. Why? Because in that moment of seeing that picture of love, they'd been instantly healed and they felt it in their body. And the worship team carried on and I'm trying to preach and put Richard down and there's pandemonium in there. I'm like, what's good? And then suddenly there's a line of people who've just, without being invited, they've just come and stood out here because they've been physically healed and they want to tell everybody. And I'm thinking, that is rude. I'm supposed to be preaching. <laughs> One after another, they came up and talked about what God had done. What was it? that ignited that moment of power. It was a simple revelation of the loving heart of God. Sir, ma'am, if you're running from God, you're running from love. And during this sermon, it's not worship time now, but let's just turn it into worship time. We lift up the name of Jesus because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the glorious one. He is the mighty one. He is the savior. He is holy. He is powerful. He is loving. He is caring. Anyone agree? Well, come on then, people. You know, we're not, we're not a church who say, you know, we don't, we, we don't do, you know, like, raise your hands now. Whoop. Everyone clap now. Everyone dance now. We're not that kind of church. I do think, though, sometimes we just need to cut loose and get rid of the religious corsets, if you will. Did I just say religious corsets then? <laughs> Greetings from Timberline Church. For those of you listening to this on the internet, a previous mention by the speaker concerning religious corsets. 
I, the speaker, Pastor Darren Northrup, senior <laughs> pastor of this church. Number four. Number four, we must allow Jesus to disappoint us. What? We must allow Jesus to disappoint us. There are three things you'll never hear a preacher say. You'll never hear a preacher say, let's skip the offering. <laughs> In the history of the Christian church, this probably never happened. Why? Because it's part of our worship and we need the resource to do what we do. You don't hear preachers say that. Here's another one. You never hear a preacher say, we don't need any more volunteers, thanks. It's not going to happen. Here's another thing you don't normally hear a preacher say, I'm disappointed with Jesus. Now put that stone down right now. As I tell you that there is a sense in which I am disappointed with Jesus and we must allow Jesus to disappoint us. And it's not, listen carefully, otherwise you're going to get really mad. It's not that there's anything wrong with Jesus but sometimes we have false expectations of him and because he doesn't respond to those wrong expectations, we're disappointed. Do you see the difference? When I became a Christian, I thought I'd be spared all pain. Don't know where I got that idea. I thought I'd have all the answers eventually. Don't know where I got that idea. And I thought that if I prayed long and hard enough, he'd always say yes to what I wanted. Anyone? Please don't get upset with me if, you, if you've got one of these. But you know those nodding dogs? You've seen those nodding dogs? I'm not sure what that's about. Someone says, honey, let us purchase a nodding dog. And we can place it in the back of our car so that when we go around corners, it will nod vociferously for the entertainment of other people on the road. We won't be able to see it ourselves, but we want to provide a moment of joy to others. I've been practicing this, so let me work it. <laughs> and when I became a Christian, it's difficult to walk and do this at the same time. This is a miracle of coordination. When I became a Christian, I wanted a nodding God. You want this, Jeff? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. The God who always says yes, and he doesn't. If you doubt that, ask the Pharisees. They wanted Jesus to be this and he was that. If you doubt that, talk to Salome, the mother of James and John. She wanted thrones for her boys, not one of them to be beheaded. If you doubt it, talk to Peter. He didn't want Jesus to go to the cross, but Jesus disappointed him with that one. If you doubt it, talk to the rich young ruler. He wanted to make a deal, but Jesus said no. If you doubt it, talk to Elijah or Jeremiah or a whole bunch of people, including Jonah. And if we're going to have a faith of maturity, we need to be able to allow Jesus to disappoint us and even to be angry with God, even if our anger is wrong, and tell him. Philip Yancey, Philip Yancey, I'm sort of angry because he's got so much hair, frankly. And he says, one bold message of the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. And that's true. It's true in Jonah. I mean, look at what Jonah says. Kill me now. I mean, that's not a prayer you'd normally find on a Christian refrigerator, is it? Kill me now. Amen. <laughs> Let's let Jesus disappoint us. Finally, number five. 
It's possible to have your body in the church building and your heart in the far country. I'll say it again. It's possible to have your body in the building and your heart in the far country. You see, Jonah goes to the east side of the city. But now his anger is unresolved and it's turning toxic and silly. Will you see this? He stopped running, but he's still running. He's done the job, but his heart is still distant. And there's a leafy plant that grows, and he's happy, and there's a worm, and he's not happy. There's a scorching east wind. It's interesting that it's an east wind. East wind to the Hebrews meant judgment. Hosea prophesied about the east wind of judgment. It's like God saying, have a little taste of judgment. See how it feels. And Jonah, if I can put it like this, he's in church, but he's not. He's he's fulfilled the responsibility, he's done the stuff, but his heart is distant. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's possible for that to happen to us. Sir, you've been coming here for a while because your spouse says you should come, but you're not here. Thank you for coming. Your body's here, but your heart's out there. Could this be a junction today where you say, I'm going to allow my, align my heart with my body. I'm going to make Jesus my Lord. Young person, is it possible that you bring your body to the building because your parents insist that you do? But this weekend is the weekend where you say, I want to know this loving God, this beautiful God for myself. What's our response? Well, the book of Jonah ends with a question. Do you ever watch a movie where you you know that the end is coming and you're like, awesome, I'm going to find out who done it or what they did. And then the movie ends and you're just sitting there waiting and then the credits roll and you're like, no, what happened? And I turn to my wife and I say, what happened? As if she knows. And she says, it's just a story. And I say, I know. I know. I want to know. As Ruth comes to help me here, the end of Jonah ends like that. Should I not be concerned for this great city, says God, and we wait for Jonah to respond. And the credits roll. I'm like, what? And we never find out. I wonder if God did that, leaving us with an open-ended question without an answer to give us the opportunity to answer to him for ourselves. Are we angry with God? Tell him. It's all right. Tell him. And we'll pray that you'll be able to trust in the midst of your anger 
Is your body in the building, but your heart way out there somewhere? Let's change it. Let's change it today. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, you are wonderful. We don't even begin to grasp how wonderful you are. And you are patient and kind, long-suffering with us. And sometimes you are disappointing, not because there's anything wrong with you, Lord, but because our expectations of you are false. And we get mad because you don't deliver what you didn't promise to deliver. And we get mad because we don't understand. And in this prayer, Lord, I don't make light of the struggle because there are some here who are navigating tragedy. It's no superficial thing and they're angry and bewildered. There are others of us, Lord, whose bodies are here, but our hearts are not lined up. Maybe church has become a habit, a dull habit. In these next few seconds, Holy Spirit, we invite you to do what only you can do. Let's keep our heads bowed. I've got two questions and there'll be one moment to invite you to raise your hand to respond. The first one is if you're angry and you need to bring your anger, even anger towards God in prayer and tell him. And we're gonna agree with you that God will grant you peace and the ability to trust him, to hold on to the God who will never let go of you. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm also going to ask you to respond if your body's in the building, but your heart's somewhere else, and you want that to change, either as a Christian, or maybe for some, you're making a first-time step today to say, I want this. This faith is not my spouse's faith. This faith is not my parents' faith. This faith is not my friend's faith. This is my faith now. I'm making the choice. I want to follow Jesus. And if that's where you're at, just whisper to God. Tell him that's where you're at. No magic formula. Just hand your life over to him. Ask him to take charge. Accept his forgiveness. But what's wrong? Jesus died on the cross to make that happen. Raised again now. Ready to step in. So if you're angry and you need strength to trust, if your body's in the building, the heart's been somewhere else, but you're changing that today, I'm going to ask this one time as our heads are bowed and I look around. Just slip up your hand and hold it there. Right now. Junction moment. Quiet revolution. A day to remember. Just hold up that hand. Keep it there. Lots of people responding around the building. Visit us, Lord, with grace. Strengthen those who struggle to trust. Draw close to those who are calling upon you for the first time from their heart. Before I close this prayer, take 20 seconds, please, to whisper to God what you'd like to whisper to God from your heart.
So we thank you, Lord, because you hear us. Take the seed of your word, watered by your spirit, produce great fruit in our lives from this moment of history for some. We agree together in Jesus' name, everyone said.